Good morning and welcome. I hope you had a great weekend. So far in chapter 6, Paul has identified two particular sins that some in the Corinthian church were guilty of. The sins were sexual immorality and lawsuits against one's brother in Christ. What Paul will do now is try and reframe the way they think about their sin and to remind them of the power of the gospel to equip a person to overcome sin and live righteously. Listen now as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In verses 9 and 10, Paul will reframe the way he wants them to think about their sin. Remember that earlier Paul told them that they were arrogant about their sin and that their boasting was not good. This seems to indicate that they did not think that their sin was a very big deal. I believe they were guilty of thinking that the gospel freed them from the penalty of sin, but it did not obligate them to live differently. This is an error that pops up from time to time throughout church history. As Paul is apt to do, he will ask a question to make his point. He asks, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's certainly saying that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God, And he's asking the question because he knows that they know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God because they had been taught by him, and he certainly would have told them. The unrighteous are those who persist in their sin and have not truly received the grace of Christ. It could be those who make no claim to have followed Christ, but in this context, Paul is talking about those who claim to follow Christ but make no effort at mortifying their sin and living righteously. This is the problem in Corinth. They professed to follow Christ, but their lives gave no evidence of this. Jesus deals with the same thing in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These words are sobering because those making a claim on Christ claim that they did all sorts of things in his name. But what Jesus makes clear is that they did not do them out of obedience to the Father. Jesus is not claiming that obedience is the way to be saved. He is saying that the one who is saved seeks to walk in obedience. These individuals aren't losing their salvation either. Jesus claims to have never known them. And returning to 1 Corinthians, what Paul says about the unrighteous inheriting the kingdom is written in the future tense, which means that the unrighteous will never inherit the kingdom of God. The term inherit is important here as well. Throughout scripture, the inheritance is something that belongs to children. 
The children of God are the ones who look forward to an inheritance. But Paul doesn't stop with the two sins that he already listed. He will name a number of sins that would result in someone not inheriting the kingdom of God. Every one of us sins and may have been guilty of the sins Paul addresses here. The condemnation comes upon those who persist in their sin and are unrepentant of their sin. This shows that they are not truly in Christ. There is also a danger for the one who sees that the Bible calls their action sinful, but refuses to acknowledge their sin as sin. This reveals a serious heart problem. Paul will present two sets of sins. They are sexual sins and sins related to material possessions, abusiveness, and robbery. The sexual sins that Paul lists are sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuals. I'm not going to take the time to go into details with the detail with these sins, except for one. Paul includes idolaters in the middle of his list of sexual sins, but this wasn't done on accident. In Romans chapter 1, Paul states that the ungodly suppress the truth about God revealed in creation, and they do this in unrighteousness. After suppressing the truth about God, they become futile in their thinking, and although they think they are wise, they are actually fools. This then leads them to idolatry. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creation rather than the creator. God then gives them over to their sinful desires, which results in them committing various other sins, the first of which is sexual sin, in particular homosexuality. So it makes perfect sense that Paul would include idolatry in his list of sexual sins because idolatry inevitably leads to various other sins normally related to some kind of sexual sin. The next set of sins Paul lists are thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. All of these fit within the sins listed in the Ten Commandments. But Paul doesn't just list their, their sins. He concludes this section by reminding them of the power of the gospel. The first thing we will see is that the power of the gospel is power to transform lives. Paul tells the church related to all of those sins that he listed, and such were some of you. Not every member of the church in Corinth persisted in sin. Those believers in Corinth had been guilty of all of the sins that Paul listed, but those things didn't define or control them any longer. They were those things, but they weren't those things anymore. Paul in this is also revealing that a lifestyle of sin is not consistent with one who confesses Christ. The gospel has the power to cancel not only the penalty of sin, but also its power. If you are familiar with the hymn Rock of Ages, you know it speaks of the double cure of one being cleansed from sin's guilt and power. Paul will then use three words to detail the transformation that takes place when one turns from their sin 
and embraces Christ by faith. Those who do that are washed. There is an actual spiritual cleansing that takes place when one is united to Christ. The stain of sin is literally washed away. Those who confess Christ are sanctified. There are two ways to understand this word. First, it means there is a break that occurs whereby believers desire to live righteously and turn from their sin. The power of sin is actually broken. And it means that the believer begins a process where they are made holy of actual transformation. So believers are washed, sanctified, and finally, Paul says, they are justified. This word means declared righteous. Believers stand before God as a beloved and holy child. This occurs only in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Apart from the saving grace of Jesus, we are without hope. But the Spirit of God applies the cleansing power of Christ's perfect life and atoning death to us. Sin is bondage. But thanks be to God that we are freed in Christ. Today I want to pray for our rhetoric schoolers, our students, our faculty, the parents. So please join with with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for this school year that we've been able to meet and we've been able to be together. Thank you for the rhetoric school students who have been able to come and, uh, of course, be careful with social distance and other uh, precautions, but we've been able to be together and that has been a glorious thing. I pray that you would continue to bless those students. I pray as they finish up this first quarter, uh, the tests and papers and all of the things that they need to get in, uh, that they'll do those things and that they'll do them well. Pray for the parents. Uh, I know it can be a struggle uh, with with certain restrictions in place. Uh, I pray that you would give them patience and help them to remember uh, that we do this so that we are able to meet together. And I pray for the rhetoric school teachers. I pray that you would continue to bless them and their work so that in all that we do here at the Geneva School of Bernie, Jesus Christ is uplifted and glorified. And I pray this in his name. Amen.